Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we're talking late winners for Aston Villa and Tottenham. We'll also be asking, are Liverpool really titled contenders? And we'll be looking at why Super Sunday was a bit more like Sleepy Sunday. Uh, We'll also be looking at diving headers, the art of the diving header with a man who was pretty good at them back in the day. We'll also be looking at rotating goalkeepers. And we'll be chatting about our exclusive interview with Roy Hodgson. And joining me, Tom Clark, for all of that is our two favourite former footballers, Gregor Robertson and Tony Cascarino, and our favourite football writer, Alison Rudd. And just before you think this is terrible management and that I'm alienating the rest of the team, Strictly Come Dancing's back. So that's my (laughs) Bruce Forsyth tribute. You're all my favourites, after all. Um, I was really hoping for a nice to see you, nice to see you. You know, I thought a teacher... (laughs) Left a gap there for them and everything. No, you just honestly, you can't get the staff anymore. But before, good game, good game. Yeah, there we go. You see, now you're getting into it. Now we're talking. That's what I want. That's what I want. Honestly, never mind. We should rehearse these things, really, shouldn't we? Um, but before we get into all that, we must go to Old Trafford and the shortest segment in game podcast history, because we're just going to go back and rewind to Thursday's show. Producer Neil, play the clip. Would we be surprised if the result of the weekend after has gone 3-1 to Brighton, mm. Old Trafford? I wouldn't be surprised. No, I wouldn't either. No, no. Absolutely not. Says it all, really, doesn't it? Says it all, really, Tony Cascarino. There you go. <laughs> Brighton 3, Manchester United 1, as we told you on Thursday. So moving on, Liverpool's big win at Wolves. Ha, 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 ha. Honestly, it's just laugh a minute with me, isn't it, on a Monday morning? I genuinely did, listeners say to Gregor, I was like, we could, we could genuinely just play that and move on and be arty be a bit meta about it and Greg was like now come on we've got to talk about it for God's sake man come on be serious <laughs> so fine we do we do but Tony not surprised um, my point was more about Brighton winning yeah I mean predicting the actual score is just that's just guesswork um, how very humble uh, I, don't know. <laughs> no, I, I mean I mean Tom you've, you've include yourself on this you've, you've kept the clip in of you saying I did yeah yeah, so, you know, you yeah. we, we all sort of agreed... That, we're all geniuses, you're right. You're right. We, we all sort of felt, well, no, it wouldn't be a surprise at all because Man United are a shadow of the club they were many years ago. Even, say, many years, even in recent... If you go back to last season, they look way off what they were last season. Um, in the manner... It was quite weird because I watched Liverpool and I watched Man United and Liverpool were way worse in their first half against Wolves and Man United were in the, in the first half. Uh, yet, as the game wore on... 
the game got stretched. United looked more likely to concede more goals and probably got away with not conceding a fourth and fifth. Uh, but there's there's a lot wrong. I don't think anybody has any doubts in their mind, even the die-eyed Man United fans, are knowing that their club is in the mire and there is a lot wrong at the football club. Isn't, but there's a lot wrong at the football club and we've talked about it many times on many different podcasts, the, the list of things that are wrong. Mm. But the shift, I think in this game was that the fans were not prepared to think oh well you know poor old Ten Hag operating mm. in a difficult place at a difficult time they were actively booing his decisions mm. I mean so, so it's like every level something's wrong from the history to the ownership to the continued mismanagement at executive level a lot of problems with individual players uh, morally included and now you've got the manager being booed because he chooses to take off a relatively young new striker. That mm. is, that's like, what, what have you got left? I mean, what, what, is, what is the good news? We are heading into dangerous territory of going into what the... We must talk about Brighton <laughs> yeah. here. I can see it coming. That. I can see it coming. Because I wanted to ask you, Alison, first, because you weren't on Thursday's show, about Brighton and about this performance and about how you view them at the minute. You know, did, were you in agreement with us when you listened to Thursday's show, thinking... Brighton are favourites for this game. Oh, and I nodded along. I mean, you know, in awe of you all, really, thinking I'm not worthy to be in on a Thursday because they're all so clever on a Thursday. The reality it's is that she plays tennis. She, she plays tennis and refuses to come in on a Thursday, actually. <laughs> big game, big game drama. Oh, you're ripping anyway. open the curtain there, Yeah, Tom. exactly. Well, I'm Dear not having me. any of that. But Brighton, they're superb. Obviously, they've been brilliant for a long time. You talked about them in the preview show. You thought they were just going to keep going and going. But this performance, does it actually say anything about Brighton other than what we know already? Does it say that they've gone, yeah, they're, they're, they're going beyond? No, a little bit more because, uh, was it six six yeah, changes? changes? Six yeah. changes. And you think, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. They've already had changes because they had um, quite a lot of business in the summer selling players for lots of money that you think of their most famous players. And then they can afford to make six changes on top of that. I mean, you know, what, you know, how, how much rotation does that club have in their bank if you like and then you hear Jason Steele say afterwards I thought this was really revelatory actually or insightful at least that he was saying it almost doesn't matter who they sign because you have you what's the important thing about that player is they buy into what they have going at Brighton and the manager's way of training and their approach and their style and their intensity and their work rate it's it's like um almost like a cult and you buy into it and Lewis. then on the pitch, you get something that is so much greater than the sum of its parts Lewis. because they're buying into a system. Lewis Dunk said exactly the same thing to us in the mix zone after the Newcastle game uh, about Ansu Fati's arrival. He's saying, like, it's going to be an eye opener for him. Mm. He, but if he's open minded and if he works hard and he sort of buys into what everyone else has had to do here, then he'll, he'll love it. He'll have a great time. Mm. I think this game underlined everything that Brighton have that Manchester United don't. And, like, part of that is. Yeah, they can make six changes and there's still such a a clear vision and idea and whoever steps in knows the roles in the system. Tarek Lamptey can play at left-back. But then also, uh, Mahmoud Dahoud was the only Deserby signing. Mm. So it's also about the succession planning and all the things that we've spoken about for so long about Deserby came in and he's largely worked with the same group of players and, and he's brought them on to a new level. And from... You know, I, I'm going to have to speak at Manchester United quickly here because I still 
stand by what I said on thur- Thursday about Ten Hag and that any any manager would be undermined by what's going on around them at Manchester United and by the sort of oppressive weight of all the crap above them and you know I was thinking you know, you look at the joyous scenes at, at the Tottenham uh, Hotspur Stadium this weekend and the impact that someone like Ange Postacoglu's done do we think if we transferred Postacoglu in to Old Trafford he could have had the same impact and there was a lot of stuff going on at Spurs too mm. I don't think it, I think there's such a rotten mm. core at that club and as, as I say I, I'll say it again as long as the Glazers are owners of Manchester United it will be impossible for anyone to fully break free of that okay. I, I, I think it's really an eye opener when you look at the downfall of Barcelona with all the money and how they were spending it and you know just players coming in with huge salaries Man United have had quite a bit of that as well if you take it even to Alexis Sanchez mm. who came into the club you know moves that were all based on Paul Pogba uh, Paul Pogba getting huge money and and then you see De Gea's contract and you see Marcus Rashford signed and there's been a lot of failure all the way round and yet players seem to get the crown jewels when they join Man United some of them getting renewed contracts people like Phil Jones it, it feels like there's a lot that's going on that I don't know how... Barcelona did all this. They had Dembele, you know, on a huge contract. They had Coutinho on a huge contract and, and many others. And it was it was really weird from the outside thinking they're not the club they were once upon a time, but they're giving everybody loads of money. Mm. And and Man United feel like they're the, the Christmas club where they just keep giving out presents to everybody without... Fernandez signed a new deal. Mm. You know, yes, he did well in the first season and gets the captaincy. I, I don't get all the decisions and, and and again probably echoing what Greg was saying I, I wouldn't go totally on Ten Hag but a lot of the signings already look like they're not delivering to the expectation that's required of that football club well spot on you know because what the Man United are they're like um, they're like someone billionaire's son who has no mates and no social skills and thinks, but I'm having a party, so I'm going to have to pay people to come to my party. Whereas mm. you've got Brighton, who have loads of mates, don't need to pay anyone to come to the party. <laughs> and in fact, get away with only serving sausage rolls because everyone's going to have an amazing time and the music's going to be groovy. Remember, you've got a Northerner and a Scot on this podcast. There's no <laughs> wrong with a sausage roll at a party. <laughs> <laughs> if if anything, laughing. that's the highlight. I'm laughing because Alison invited me around to a Christmas party. <laughs> <laughs> All coming out now. Well, I didn't the re- pay you to come, did I? <laughs> but, but I mean, lots of interesting points raised there. But do we, Gregor, kind of slightly back to you on the kind of slight defence of Ten Hag, because you know everyone's talking about Brighton and oh, they've only spent this much on their team in comparison to Man United. And your point about Postecoglou is the same and applies to Deserby as well. If you put him in at Old Trafford, it wouldn't immediately be the same. But Ten Hag has been there. This isn't his first season. He's not. It's not a case of him saying, "Oh, he's playing with other people's players." as per the point you made about Deserby. There's, there's there's two elements here, aren't there, in terms, in terms of bad management, bad transfer signings that Tony highlights. But you would expect to see a little bit more on the pitch in terms of a manager who's had a time with a group, has played Brighton a couple of times now already, knows what you're going to get. Or am I being too harsh? You know, Tony said they played well in the first half and then just kind of dropped off. But it, it, am I not right in to, to expect a little bit more from Ten Hag in these situations? Are the United fans... Uh, not allowed to boo a few decisions and also still be angry at the ownership yeah, look at ultimately you know a manager can only go for so long without you seeing some positive effects and you know 
the, the buck will stop stop with him. I just I think it's easy to think, you know, it's easy to think you could transplant someone else in there and they would have an impact. And because we've seen someone like Deserbi be so impactful in the way they play, I just think you can't underestimate the sort of oppressive atmosphere at that club. And also the kind of maybe the the culture and he's spoken about these things and the the, the things that there are in the in the changing room possibly some egos possibly you know some people who've, who've been there too long some people who think that they should be playing when they're not like all these things whereas it's like that's why he keeps talking about the thing that <laughs> that people can't buy from Brighton is is their is their culture and their spirit mm. and that's it's so important like no matter at every level like even at the, the very top level you cannot you cannot have an atmosphere that is you know that is that is not conducive to success because it ultimately it ultimately doesn't doesn't mean that players can get that you know can draw the most out of themselves it doesn't make make a sort of collective team spirit all these things are the things that we've seen repeatedly Manchester United like flicker like to kind of almost tease us thinking that they're, they're getting somewhere but it always it, they're always dragged back into this yeah tony do you think then that greg is right you know you used the word oppressive there and it's interesting because you know i grew up in manchester a lot of my friends, my brother's a Man United fan. The, the the very simple description they often give is that they're really slow. They look much slower than mm. everyone else. Is there a sense that that kind of the the overhanging clouds that have been on the club for so long can genuinely affect a player, Tony? Yeah, I, I've I've said to you, and I think I've said to you this before on this podcast. I all, I'm always concerned about the way that Dutch football has been played mm. because they were one of the leaders of European football for a number of years with their brilliant style fantastic technical players but they could also do one thing that this United team can't is they could match you physically um, and I look at a very slow paced game at times um, Ten Hag can't get off scot free um, I understand all the problems around but I do think one of the most professional players that's ever been in the game is Ronaldo and he raised these concerns in the early stages of Ten Hag yet Ten Hag decided to go up against him and th- thought he was a real problem at the football club now you know we can we can look back and I, I sort of think maybe yeah Ronaldo has got that incredible ego it's been part but you could never accuse him of not being professional professional as his fitness and the way he's you know you don't get to 37 38 in in the way he's looked after himself and he obviously saw a lot of this going on at Old Trafford. You know, we've seen what's happened with Pogba in recent weeks and, and you have to go back again and you think, this club has been run so strangely for a club, you know... That predates Ten Hag, though. Yes, it so does. But bring those points it, up, but that doesn't yes. mean the decision to get rid of him wasn't the correct No, no, I, I, I've always had this thing in my head about... Because I've worked on Dutch football and I looked at it and I keep thinking, there's a lot of Dutch players who come over who don't match up to the physical side, they play as uh, Ajax play one way and every club in Holland nearly plays the same way, which they basically, no one will dare play to up front. Everyone plays a possession base with no pressing at all. And I don't look at United's pressing as as, as a pressing of sorts. It's mm. Brian got round their press really easy, mm. especially in the second half. It was a looking over your shoulder, are you going to follow me in? And it's yeah. and I think it's a lot of that <laughs> it going on. to be on. working. And I, I don't wonder whether that's part with United and Ten Hag and the kind of the plan A sometimes works yes sometimes but then a team like Deserby and Brighton who are clever adapt to it and United don't adapt back because that mm. seemed to be the case with the pressing it was working and then all of a sudden Brighton were playing around them and United went hang on a minute I thought this I thought we'd cracked it what 
yeah. Well, Vince fans, is able to react. Alison mentioned about uh, obviously Hoiberg coming off and um, Holland. Holland, oh, sorry, Holland yeah. coming off and and when he came off, you know, most fans would go, "Well, look, he's been injured. He hasn't played. He's missed the start of the season." They understand from the manager, but the fans were more like, "Well, no, this is just a decision. We need a goal. And we're desperate for getting it." You know, and they the, the frustration. There's a lot going on at that football club, and it's so complex. I don't think anyone, even Ten Hag, even if he got half the decisions right that's happened so far, they'd still be in a situation of not being challenging the leading clubs in 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 the Premier League. I just don't see it at the moment. Mm. This this bleaker days ahead for Man United. That's for sure. Yeah, the boo. You see, the booing was partly because the fans want a good news story they wanted a sort of fairy tale yeah. they wanted yeah. something nice to happen that they could cling to think, this is the future <clears throat> we spent a lot of money on a young striker his, his arrival you know on the scene is a bit delayed by his back issue but he looked okay against which he Arsenal. was against Arsenal wasn't it that was the positive when they lost to Arsenal yeah, it was okay. well Hoyland looked yeah, quite good yeah, he looked quite like he, he's not going to be held back by his injury and he played okay against Brighton didn't look intimidated by it it looked like looked like he was growing into the role I mean they, oh, the fans are clearly prepared to give him time to get used to the team and so on but then to haul him off it, they, the fans felt denied more that that sense of that little flicker of optimism it's like oh well we don't want Martial again we don't want that again yeah you also got to look at like United played had Regulon playing left back it was like a panic by a panic loan signing for left back mm. So you have Johnny Johnny Evans on the bench, like Lindelof still playing at centre half, and and you look at as we've already mentioned the succession planning, Brighton signing several midfield players when they knew they were selling McAllister and uh, Caicedo, like there is still fundamentally an absolutely enormous gulf between the the sort of intelligence of the running of a club like Brighton yeah. and every club really mm-hmm. in the Premier League, yeah. but Manchester United. <laughs> particularly so yeah I mean worrying times for Eric Ten Hag and Manchester United but I want to finish on Brighton with this one and Alison again on Thursday we talked about how far they can go I think in the season preview you talked about top six could you see going any higher they've obviously got their debut in Europe this week against AEK Athens I could I mean I'm I'm not going to say they can't go higher Just I just think it's realistic with your first ever campaign in Europe I think you should be happy with top six and doing well in Europe. And I think that would be a fantastic season for them. Absolutely. Incredibly exciting times for Brighton. Slightly worrying for Manchester United, but I'm sure it won't be the last time we say those words on the game podcast. Another team we're getting excited about, or maybe not, Gregor, is Liverpool. You were at their win against Wolves. Hmm. Uh, and you were chatting with me before the show. Bloody headline writers are overselling my piece. <laughs> I came in and I came in. I was off. I was off on Sunday, so you know all the bad headlines get through when I'm off on the editing desk. But Gregor, you'd written a piece about our Liverpool contenders, are they? Well, that seems to be the kind of growing consensus, the view that's like you know this this is getting quite exciting because there's you know there's a steely edge now to Liverpool. They can kind of come back from having gone behind in three of their games uh, to win them. And there still just seems to me a lot of issues in, uh, that Liverpool have to confront. And yeah, that's you know, that's a positive. But I think more than a steely edge, that's actually because of the the wealth of options they have on the on the bench now in attacking areas mm. and the changes and the, how impactful they've been in in game substitutes. Sometimes a tweak of formation, Klopp changed to four four two at half time in this game. Uh, in fact, it was more like four two four and. He went for it and had four attackers on the pitch, dropped Sabozlai back into kind of holding number six position. 
and he was brilliant in the second half. But it, there's still a massive questions about the balance in midfield for me. Mm. I don't know who the ball winner is. Um, Do you agree with Tony that they were poor in the first half? They were awful. Yeah, woeful. Mm-hmm. Not poor, woeful. Like they weren't. There was no energy. There was no bite. There was no like cohesion. Klopp was just kept kind of throwing his arms around and like, what's going on? And and he berated uh, Cody Gakpo when for Wolves' goal, the opening goal, he, he there was a long throw into the box by I think Curtis Jones, and he kind of threw a leg out at it, miscontrolled it, and they broke away with Neto, who was outstanding. Uh, and and scored the opener and Klopp Klopp said you know I think some of his quotes were brilliant he said it looked like we'd met in the car park for the first time before the game and he said like what? so he was asked what, what were you thinking at half time he was like WTF <laughs> and like you know it was awful and yes they were better in the second half but it's also you know it's the old Roy Keane thing it's easy to play when you're one when you're one nil down I know Alison and I have had some disagreements about that in the past but it is they're like you've you throw the shackles off, particularly you throw on a few few of your subs. So I, I, a, I don't know how sustainable that is, and B, as I say, I'll come back to it. The balance in midfield, I still don't see who the ball winner is, and Wolves had a, a player in, in uh, Jao Gomez who was outstanding at that. He won, I think, six tackles, more, more than any player on the pitch. Wolves were really intelligent about you know, holding a, a low block and then not, you know, not being drawn out by Liverpool, and then just when they played a forward pass, they would snap into it, mm. win, little pressing triggers, win the ball back and go on the break. And they could have been two or three up at half-time. Um, and also at the back, the, the Trent Alexander-Arnold wasn't playing playing in this game. He's got a hamstring injury. But Klopp asked uh, Joe Gomez to, to play the same sort of role and step into midfield. You know, that we've seen mm. Trent do it... it and and how much we when they went back to four at the back, we saw you know Andy Robertson was let off the leash, and we saw we saw what kind of mm. how he's been sort of shackled by this 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 desire to move Trent into midfield, which is really because he's not good enough defensively. There's just a lot of balancing sort of act questions for me about Liverpool. Yes, they've got so much talent and so much attacking power now, firepower and potential in going forward, but the other way. Not sure. But Cla- be honest. Classic politician's be- answer from Gregor. No, Alison. no, but be honest, Gregor. It's if fairly you can, clear. If you, can, <laughs> if you can be honest, did you at any point in that first half think Liverpool were going to lose this match? Absolutely. Really? Well, see, I didn't. Uh, it was fan. a lunchtime. It was a lunchtime kickoff. Liverpool don't like them. Have too many of them, and it's become a bit of an issue at the club, and especially lunchtime kickoffs uh, after an international break. And he and Klopp hadn't even, you know hadn't even had a cup of tea with half the players. That has an impact. The mere fact that they can get all that jet lag and uh, lack of cohesion out of their system in the first 45 minutes and at half-time, Klopp <laughs> is capable of turning it around so that they come out and look like a team that could challenge Manchester mm. City for the title. That says a lot, I think, to be able to absorb. And it was an appalling first-half performance. The ball was given away and then it was given away again and then it was given away again. And the midfield looked a mess. I agree completely. But the fact that he's he's got access to so much now for for a, for a club that was sort of like getting that label of well, you know, can they actually compete with someone like Man City because they can't they can't they haven't got two players for every position. They actually look like they almost have, and he can rejig it, Klopp. And I thought, I 
whilst accepting it was an abysmal first half performance. And also there's that sort of game management knowledge. You know, Wolves just ran out of puff. And I kind of knew that was going to happen as well. Yeah, look, if it, it, you knew that Wolves had to get another goal. Mm. You know, they, they couldn't keep up that. Cunha's chance. Oh, it's a great chance. Just before half time, yeah. an unbelievable chance. He just mistimed the, misjudged the whether he had to jump or not, and it's like <laughs> then it fell at a position between his foot and you know even his chest. He couldn't do anything with it. They had chances, yeah, and like I say, they, Liverpool had no ideas in the first half, and you expected them to improve in the second, but uh, I'm just not sure about the defence. Joel Matip, and I, you don't even you know you look. You look at Van Dijk coming back, and that used to be like, oh, Van Dijk's coming back. Now it doesn't really fill you with confidence that they're going to keep enough clean sheets. Mm. I think they'll score enough goals. They won't score as many goals as Man City. No one does. They'll score enough goals to be within reach of challenge for the title. I don't think they'll keep enough out. Tony, your response to all that? Um, Liverpool were as woeful as I think I can remember. I think Napoli would probably be the standout game in the Champions League last season where they were unbelievably bad in the first half. Um, obviously Neto I said before the game up against Gomez bit of a mismatch had him on toast 45 mm. minutes Gomez didn't know what to do with Neto luckily for Liverpool um, he didn't have the same impact Liverpool have got speed and they can change it uh, obviously with Nunes and Diaz coming on Harvey Mac- Elliott too was good yeah Harvey well. Elliott done really well as well yeah um, the three subs were big and they were really big at uh, St James's Park as well that turned the game around uh, McAllister clearly had jet lag. Mm. I mean, he got back Friday morning. I talked about yeah. Casemiro and, and jet lag and Matt McAllister. McAllister had a parachute on his back. He kept giving away the, the ball. Mm. If you're going to give away the ball in that position, which he was normally being the last man, you're in trouble. And it suited Wolves. Uh, that's why he came off immediately after 45 minutes because Klopp has like, looked at him and thought, I can't leave him on. He, he hasn't got the legs to get round. Uh, so there was there was many many issues in that first half. I'm looking. I'm not. Sh- I don't think Liverpool challenge this year. Um, and I'm looking at the next two away games, and it's Spurs away and Brighton away in the Premier League. You know, their next two away games. Um, and I do think there are games in between, but I do think that we'll know a lot more about where Liverpool are because I was not convinced by that victory. I wasn't really convinced about the Newcastle victory because. Nunes took two goals so brilliantly well mm. you are not going to win goals by a strikers doing that week in week out because yeah. they're unbelievable finishes um, so I think the one big positive I've took out of it was Mo Salah his involvement in the game as in not playing particularly great but being a nuisance and finding passes you know he's done again and boop the, the goal for Robertson got the little intricate pass, he's just weighted it brilliantly. And he did it in the, the opening game of the season at Stamford Bridge against Chelsea. A similar ball that, you know, OK, a bit more cover, a bit more distance. But Liverpool are not a side that have made me feel, even though it's a cover of ball, I'm not convinced they're going to be, uh, certainly not challenging for the title this year. Gregor, just a final word on Wolves. We're obviously impressed with that defeat at Manchester United, first game. But we thought, hey, hang on a minute. They look like they've got something about them. Do you still feel that? They're 16th at the minute. Do you think they'll be in the relegation scrap or higher? I don't think they'll be far clear of it. Yeah. But that's largely because they have, because of their inability to score goals. Cunha, if, if Cunha could put the ball <laughs> in the back of the net, he'd be playing for you know Man United or maybe Liverpool. Don't, but, don't give him that awful thing. No, it's <laughs> true because the way he can, he's such a good ball carrier. And on those moments on the break in transition where 
it was him and Neto it was only him and Neto and they caused absolute havoc and he's really direct he's got yeah he's he's exciting to watch but <laughs> he's he's missed a lot of chances already this season uh, and you you just struggle to see where the goals are coming from I, I just watched this again and thought I think like Gary O'Neill could be something he could be something I think as a manager he's he's got a really sharp mind mm. and you could see him on the touchline just about little things about you know if Cunha perhaps sw- uh, switched off when they were trying to hold that really rigid sort of disciplined structure and only go to win the ball back at the moments w- that they'd worked on maybe he kind of drifted out and he was going crazy on the, su- t- on the sidelines all those little details you see and it worked but they just didn't have enough to continue it for the full for the full 90 minutes and also they didn't have enough when Liverpool brought in the you know the cavalry from the bench if if you look at Wolves they've, they've had over the last few years a number of players that on their day are unplayable like Adam Maturore mm. you know you see him and you think oh he's unreal he's just got unbelievable pace Cunha Neto they've had these types of players that when you see them and you are right they could play at the very highest level but it's only in and out it's only every now and again yeah you know, I look at Neto and I think, Joe Gomez, well, if you ask him after the game, one of the toughest wingers he's played against, why many he'd probably go, oh, don't, Neto. He's so difficult to know which way he's going to go. But that typifies sort of Wolves to me. And I think that's Gary, one of Gary O'Neill's uh, biggest challenges is that getting consistency from very good footballers that they have at their club, mm. is it, it can't be just every now and again. Yeah. A little bit of hope for Wolves then. Um, we're going to talk more about some of Saturday's action in the second half of the show, but I wanted to discuss Sleepy Sunday. Uh, <laughs> sure. And uh, given given the matches and given some of the scorelines, we'll try and whiz through it quite quickly. Um, as an editor, you sometimes worry which writers you've got at which games when it's nil-nil. <laughs> but one writer that I can always rely on to produce the goods <laughs> is Alison Rudd. You were at Bournemouth, Chelsea, Alison. I, I don't want to dwell too much on Chelsea because they're a club we've talked about a lot and I feel like slightly... Similarly to Manchester United, you look at it and go, well, as you said in your report, they can't work out how to score goals. Tell us first how what your impression was of Bournemouth, because as much as your stats in your piece that you highlight aren't necessarily good for them as well, point at home is quite impressive against one of the bigger teams that have spent a lot of money, isn't it? In isolation, yes, it's a, it's a, it sounds like a, a good result. Um, but they're... They're in Dane. They're a bit like Wolves, but not quite as good as Wolves. That's the problem. They can't score. They have um, they have a philosophy which is, I don't know. I think at the moment you can probably divide the Premier League into clubs where who have managers whose philosophy is to be attacking and reckless and entertaining and organized quite chaos. Like, quite like chaos. Yeah, that's what he's and. Bournemouth are one of those. Areola is is one of those managers. So, actually, I felt they were quite well disciplined in that they pressed high. So, uh, the Chelsea back four were always under some sort of pressure. There were quite a lot of um, cherry shirts going for it in that sense, which you'd think, and you sort of thought, oh, well, Pochettino knows this is going to happen, so he set up his team to try and make use of the gaps that Bournemouth must inevitably leave but they were very disciplined at getting players back into position and um, defending they defended well actually there was only a couple of times when they were exposed so they got they got they it wasn't so much chaotic this time there was a balance between going for it 
and they grew in confidence because I think they probably showed a little bit of respect initially to Chelsea. Then it became pretty clear that Chelsea were in a uh, an emotionally negative state. It was a very strange game. Um, yeah, I mean, I I made the analogy in my piece that you know it used to be like Chelsea would be like, oh, I'm going to a wedding and. Uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing all my favourite cousins and there's that aunt and uncle I haven't seen for ages. And then, but you, you end up at this Chelsea team and you stand up for the toast and you don't recognise anybody in the marquee because it's just like, who are Chelsea? What are they? You definitely wouldn't recognise the bench. And it was ridiculous. Ridiculous. I mean, ridiculous. And they had 12 important players out. But even when you look through those 12 important players, uh, aren't they all important? Like... Well, if they, all fit, if they were all still. fit and knew each other and yeah. had a, I mean, that's, they look like a group of strangers, partly because they are. You, yeah. you, There's you, no cohesion. You talk about that lack of cohesion. We mentioned earlier with Eric Ten Hag having been at Manchester United for a long time. Obviously, Michio Pochettino hasn't been at Chelsea for a long time. Are you seeing any seeds of hope, any any bit reason to be optimistic in terms of their play, in terms of their tactics, in terms of the things he is responsible for? Well, not really. And I don't know. If I was, if I was Pochettino, I would... I would not be sleeping well because I don't know how you get a team to gel when you have this relentless conveyor belt of injuries. It's peculiar. And I don't think it's... Everyone goes, oh... And and Pochettino himself said, you know, what am I going to do? Cry about it. I've got to handle the injuries. But I think there's something... We have talked about Chelsea's owners perhaps not knowing what they're doing. I don't think they've employed the right people uh, in the sports science department because there's so much high-tech analysis now and ways of preventing injury that if you are run properly as a club, uh, you I've written about this because I wrote about uh, artificial intelligence in football and one of the things I touched upon was, and I only touched upon this because it's mainly about tactics, but is that you identify just from the way a player runs in training or in a match you can identify where he might be about to pick up an injury and you stop that injury happening or becoming serious god i wish there was that in my <laughs> and you 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 know your priority as a sports science unit is to make sure that players who cost a lot of money are not missing half the season because they pick up a hamstring or whatever and there are ways of doing that and you can go through the clubs that you think are well run and have have recruited well in in those sort of tech departments. It's not just a run of bad luck that Chelsea have this conveyor belt of injuries. They're not there's something not they're not doing it right. They're not picking it. They're not picking up early enough the potential for there to be an injury. So that I I think that's part of the flaws of the new ownership actually and that's but it's not Pochettino's fault that's not his department no. that's not what he does he has to deal with it but I, I I did struggle to see patterns I struggled to see and he did too I mean he moaned about where the fullbacks were well it's, mm. surely he's told them where to be it was it was but it was mo- mostly because they 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 weren't an integrated team they didn't you know we talked about six changes made by Brighton but everybody knew their role these changes, they're enforced changes, and it's not the it's not the starting eleven Pochettino would like, or anywhere close. So every single player looked like they were filling in for someone else, as opposed to feeling they were part of a project or a pattern. And uh, they they emanated 
um, hesitancy and negativity most of the game. Tony, quickly from you on Chelsea. Um, look, I've been a Chelsea player and I've had a lot of contact with people within the club. There's been massive change inside the club as well. And it's not just in one department that I was talking about, you know, on on avoiding injuries. It's to do with it across the board at Chelsea. There's huge change. Hardly anybody knows anybody in any department at Chelsea at the moment. I find it really strange, as in Poch feels like he's a coach that he's got to do a lot of work on individual players. Whether it's Nicholas Jackson, you know, as a centre-forward, you know, he had the luxury at PSG of having some great strikers and he did at Spurs as well. And he probably didn't have to spend that much time working on Harry Kane. But he did in the early stages. But he didn't have to do once he got him to be the player. I feel like Mudrick is a player that he's probably going to think, oh, I've got to work on him and his individual stuff. You know, he's up against Max Aarons in the game. You know, a young lad who's been in the Championship and, yeah, played Premier League football, highly thought of, right back, and he looked clueless how to get past him, you know. And it was a it it was a bit of a common theme. I just feel he's a manager that will probably say, "I need to work on six, seven players individually about how they fit into a team, and it works." And, and some of them he might already have made his mind up. I'm not, you know, they're not for me. But I've got such a long injury list that, you know, I can't resolve these problems. I think it, it's a bit like we talked about with Ten Hag about, you know, and Gregor was saying, you know, you. You put, I'm not sure how much Poch can do to improve what is already happening at the club. They are so ordinary in so many positions. Um, I, I, I mean, it was a snooze fest yesterday. You know, watching the, that game was just. Oh, what if I said someone said to me, well, "What are you going to talk about?" I say, "Well." I don't know really. Because <laughs> better leave it there then. Better leave it there then. <laughs> Moving on. No, Moving on. Go on, you're going to have to make this good. It's had the same thought for a year watching Chelsea. How on earth have they spent this money and this is the team on the pitch? Like, you can't, you can see, you know, okay, they've got. I don't think all those players who talk, like 12 players, they're not all players that you'd put in their first team. You'd put in Caicedo. You'd probably, you'd put in Wesley Fofana, Rhys James, and Kunku. That's four. Hmm. Maybe Lavia, but he's not—he's an unknown yet. Yeah. So like, they're—they're they're, they're all players that are. Everyone's unknown. They—they mm. they all are like, as I said so many times, they got rid of a Champions League winning team and replaced it at the cost of a billion pounds with potential. And mm. this is like, it's gobsmacking to look. They've got Brighton's old reserve goalkeeper playing between the sticks, like a, a, a bench full of kids that you've never heard of. And I'm sure, look, I'm sure they're talented, and I'm sure. You know, one or two of them we might see soon but again they've spent a billion pounds and that's what's on the pitch it's extraordinary Greg is verging on losing the plot here so I am going to move, I am going to Go move on because we want to talk about uh, Everton uh, Arsenal see if we can talk about that for as long as we did a nil-nil that uh, <laughs> was supposedly really boring but just two very quick questions on that uh, Tony in your column today you said that Everton are a bad version of Sean Dyche's Burnley mm. tell us more about what you think about that well, it was more to do with how their style is set up. And I don't have a problem with styles. I, I, I'm not one who thinks you can only play this way to be successful. I think the laws in the game make you have to be more adventurous, which, OK, but there's still an argument for teams that can keep clean sheets and make it difficult and they can win enough football matches. This, Bur uh, this Everton team is nowhere near as close as Sean Dyche's Burnley team. 
You know, if you think of Ashley Barnes of and Chris organi- Wood, organisation, they desire. all bought into the way they played, yeah. and they did it quite affected. You know, they were quite affected by the way they did it. And you look at Everton in this this particular game is that it felt like they had to get to the last ten minutes or get to one nil down before they were going to play the the Burnley way, which is to get it fast forward and Pickford booms it every time he mm. gets the ball. But they don't even do that well. They couldn't do what Ashley Barnes and Chris Wood did. You know, for that football club. So I, I felt that was my point is this is a really big football club in the history of, you know, football, not just Premier League, but going back to the old Division One. This club has been around for a long time, had lots of great sides, been successful. And now I'm watching a side that feel like to me, they play like a team who's got promoted from the championship, get to the Premier League and don't quite know which way they're going to play until they get there. And I, I just feel it's. It now looks like a flawed idea. And Sean Dyche is probably, deep down, if I'm sure if you went and asked Sean Dyche afterwards and said, your Burnley team and that Everton team, he'd go, no, my Burnley team were better. Mm. They were better. They were more effective. They could do it. The things I asked them to do and the way I wanted to play were way, way more suitable. This Everton team, three boys in midfield, Decoray, 40 million, okay? Six foot three, six foot four, can carry, get forward. Anana, same same thing. Mm. You know, uh, 35 million, I don't know exactly what it was. Adrissa Gay, been about three powerful athletic midfielders. None of them could get on the ball and mm. make anything happen. You know, that's your engine room. Yeah. And I, I just found them a very, very poor version of Burnley. That was what was my, you know, my take on it. Yeah. Worries on the pitch for Everton, and obviously lots of talk off the pitch about their takeover. You can read Martin Samuel's Monday morning column uh, on that topic and on ownership in football generally on the Times website. Now, moving on from Everton, I just want to ask one quick question on Arsenal, which is in relation to Mikel Arteta's comments after the game, talking about change of goalkeeper David Raya coming in in place of Aaron Ramsdale. Arteta talking not only about changing goalkeeper and having two number ones during a season, but also the potential for changing goalkeepers during a match as well. Gregor, former defender, you'd love that, wouldn't you? Change it, change it, change the bloke behind you. Yeah, he's an innovator, isn't he? Yeah. Miguel, <laughs> I mean, he's a water eater. <laughs> um, you know, I was thinking about this earlier, and I was like, oh, you know, all my natural instincts are to say, God, no, you want a settled back four, you want to know the guy behind you, you want relationships, you know, all that kind of stuff. But that's pretty much kind of been ebbed away and eroded in the modern game because yep. of the sheer volume of football that's that's being played well if you know your role as we said with Brighton it yeah. shouldn't matter so you know fundamentally that's that's the truth and I, I think if you were to give me the you know the choice and it, actually if you were probably to give most footballers the choice particularly defenders they would want to have a settled back four three whatever and goalkeeper for the, for that reason but then they also know that they're playing 60-65 games a season and so you know they can probably now understand why there is an urge to, to, to rotate more. So, I, you know, I was, my as I say, my instinct was to say something that probably makes me sound like a dinosaur. Um, having said that, changing midway through a game, I don't see any reason for that. I think he's probably gone too far down a little Mikel path there. Yeah, I, <laughs> can't, I, can't just make a point here. I, I was thinking about this and thinking on the way in about, has there ever been a scenario where two goalkeepers are arguably the number one? And it's really rare to find... I kept thinking, well, Shilton and Clements for England. That was like that for a little while. Mm. But Shilton was number one, mm. really the number one. And I, I find it hard to think how you can make an argument that says, you know, if you look at every club, we could probably say who's everybody's number one. Yeah. And it can change because of obviously form. 
but you generally, always be able to choose by who who's plays in the biggest games too. Yeah, mm. to, sorry to to, to yeah. know to to yeah. realise. So, and you know, he didn't really explain why you would change a goalkeeper midway through a game. Was it suddenly because you need to have someone who's better on the ball, like and well, potentially you never decisions. know. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> Experience, Maybe, yeah. penalty saving, the old Louis van Gaal with Tim Krul yeah, in, yeah. in the World Cup. Just very quickly, I'm not going to ask you who's the better goalkeeper, but I'm going to ask you who you prefer as a player of the two of them, Ramsdale or Raya, for all of you. Just one one word answer, Gregor. Raya? Raya. Oh yeah, Raya. Mm, interesting, but isn't this it? Is, this so maybe is, there is method is, to Mikel's madness. This is. I prefer Raya as well as for what it's the worth. Number one, number one characteristic I want in a goalkeeper was calm and composure, mm. and Ramsdale doesn't have that. Yeah. But You're only allowed one word. You cheated, but anyway. In all the discussion, <laughs> in all the discussion of should you do this to your, should you treat your goalkeeper like any other outfield player and just say, oh no, I'm going to sub you, whatever. For, for all my entire life, I grew up believing that goalkeepers were different psychologically, that their profile <laughs> was different, and it's a really, really exposed position. It's a really hard position to have on the pitch. A striker can miss a sitter. Yeah. You forget. But if he, if the goalkeeper lets something in, he should save it. it it's poured over. It's it's really hard. You are so exposed. Scrutinise more. Yeah, absolutely. And so part of the reason for establishing yourself as the number one is that it gives you a breathing space and a sense of composure and confidence, so that you all those demons you've got going in your in you know should I should I punch the ball should I catch the ball oh did I let that go you know all the things that can really mess with your head you get over them because you know you've got the faith of the manager in you and mm. your team in you and you're known as the number one and it is a different position and some strikers are known as the number one but mostly you know it's the thing that talk you talk about the keeper and it's but the thing is the bit the point I'm raising is there's a reason for that that has evolved and are we now is Arteta now saying he doesn't believe goalkeepers should have a different psyche yeah, to anyone else. That is interesting. Mm. Like why? You know, that's a fundamentally his point. Why? Why are you asking me about him and not Gabriel Jesus, who has won more trophies than anyone else in the team and me? That's what his answer was like. Mm. So he's essentially eroding that that you know the line that Alison was saying has been drawn for time, time immemorial mm. of between goalkeepers, and he's he's saying it's not. Ten, he said it's not ten plus one. So, Interesting. Well, unlike Mikel Arteta, I won't be making any changes for the second half of the podcast because you're all performing brilliantly. So stick with us. We're going to be talking diving headers and those late winners and also a little bit of Roy Hodgson. the game football podcast from the times we are going straight to the west ham stadium and tony cascarino's love of a diving <laughs> header james ward prowse pulling one out of the bag to give west ham the lead and everyone thinking oh gosh they might do it they might do it this would be so david Moyes, but sadly not <laughs> so we're not going to dwell on another win for manchester city but tony in your column you talked about the love of the diving header and a bit of a dying art for you well you rarely see them um, I actually picked it as goal of the weekend. I, I get asked to do this sometimes, pick a goal of the mm. weekend, and I picked that because I just, as he scored it, I remember thinking Millwall at Gillingham at Priestfield, and I scored a diving header against Millwall, and big Sam Allardyce was the centre half, and I got across him and di- had a diving header and put it in the bottom corner, and it was one of my favourite goals of uh, you know, and you just don't see them. 
But it's not for, it's not for sentimental reasons that you like it, isn't it? In your column, you talked no. about the benefits of them as as a move. Yes, you talked oh, okay, about this, yeah. mod, this modern thing of players cross comes in, player thinks I'm going to bring this down, yeah, trap take a it, touch. and yeah. you know. Whereas you're like throw yourself at it, and not only do you get there ahead of everyone, you're probably going to score before the goalkeeper. Right? Yeah, well, the goalkeeper can't get set. Yeah, or you know. With a touch, you that you know microsecond, uh, you, you take a touch, a defender can get to you, or a goalkeeper can set himself for the the shot that you're going to take. Diving header, it's 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 a bit like a toe punt. Mm. You know the old toe punt, running Dino, <laughs> where suddenly he shoots and people has gone past him in the bottom corner. Yeah. That's what a diving header is. You because you're taking it so early and you're finding yourself out, and it's really hard to get the right direction as well. It's not like you go, I'm going to pick that bottom corner. You just meet it. You know, and it always flies off the, your head, so it comes yeah. off really quickly. Yeah. And a goalkeeper could have it literally next to him; it can still go past him. So I just love the fact that James Ward Prowse, you know, he showed a bit of agility, and also having that in his mindset. I just, I started to think, when was the last one I saw? I remember Cavani doing it at mm. Southampton for Man United, scoring a goal with a diving header. But I, it's sort of something I look. Andy Gray was speciality of Andy Gray. He loved the diving header when he was at Wolves and Everton. Um, but there were, there were very few. So to me, it was a bit refreshing to just see yeah. that type of goal. There you are, listeners. Not often you'll hear Tony Cascarino, Ronaldinho and James Ward-Prowse <laughs> mentioned in the same <laughs> breath. But listen, I'm here for it. Gregor, just quickly from the defender's point of view, is Tony right that a diving header, if a striker goes early and goes in front of you when you're thinking, oh, I'm going to hook this away, is it a more difficult art to defend against? Yeah, anything that's, that's that's kind of instinctive or on the stretch like that as well. And if they're because oh, a striker always has the sort of the chance to make the decision of what they're going to do before you know you're re- you're reacting to it rather than making the you know the the, the main protagonist. Mm. <laughs> so um, also when it's when you're going with the head, it's a risk to to clear it to go with your foot. It's mm. like it, you you could you're more at risk of giving away a penalty. So yeah, they're they are a bit of a dying art and. Um, it was a great goal, and it's it's also brave. Yeah, I think yeah. You, you see you even see a lot of people, not not just trying to take a touch. They also try and kind of manoeuvre their body to to get their foot on it, even if it's a volley first time. So, yeah, it was a great goal to see. Hopefully, we'll see more of them. Now, I'm going to take you back to Saturday morning. I was getting on my train from Kings Cross to go to Lincoln's game, uh, which we drew. If anyone's interested, against Carlisle, not a thriller. Not going to talk any more about that. Almost as boring as Sleepy Sunday. But what I did see at Kings Cross Station was loads and loads of Sheffield United fans down for the big trip to the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, by all accounts, the great ground that you want to go to. And then when I got in the car after full time at Sinsel Bank, I looked at their score and I thought, you poor buggers, dear <laughs> me, you've made that trip down. They were in great voice. This was 10 a.m. in the morning, you know, get into the pub, have a few drinks, get excited. You think you might win 1-0. Heartbreaking. What does this say about Tottenham, though? in terms of the excitement. We don't want to dwell too much on it because we've talked about Ange Postacoglu and the brilliant start he's had. But does does this tell us anything more? And obviously a goal for Richarlison as well in the week he talked about you know having difficulties off the pitch, needing some time, um, potentially away from the game. Comes on, scores. Alison, are we seeing something, a different type of Tottenham? Not so Spursy. Well, the thing, the thing that Postacoglu likes to praise the most is the way his players react and their resilience. So if they do go behind... He likes the way that they don't crumble and or crumple. Which one's better? Both probably work. But he 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 doesn't praise the flair or the pace or so much. He 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 always praises their character. And so 
That's quite clever of him, I think, because it means the next time they go behind, they'll think, oh, we're really good at fighting back, and they'll keep doing it. And yes, it was slightly uh, cringy the way the fans celebrated like it was a piece of silverware. It was only Sheffield United, and how come it took them so long to break them down? But the fact that, the fact that they kept plugging away and um, they kept a bounciness to them. You know, there was none of that drooping shoulders. They, 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 there is, he has instilled a, a belief there, which is the Spurs must be absolutely fantastic to see. But am I allowed to mention Paul Heckingbottom? Yes, that was going to be off. my next, that was my off. next question. You do it for me. It's fine. Well, no, just that I do feel like the overwhelming sense is that Paul Heckingbottom was just whinging as a losing manager afterwards and creating, um, conspiracy theories that the officials were against him I actually think if you step back and analyse what he said there's a lot there's a lot in it that's quite complex and more interesting than it being a conspiracy theory he was saying the referees were sort of the officials were telling him you know, his team were time wasting and they had to <coughs> excuse me they had to be quicker about how they got the play going again and he was saying yeah but they don't, they don't understand how I have to, I'm away at Spurs big club I'm a small promoter club we have to set up a certain way and, you know, that my goalkeeper has to wait to see where he's going to distribute the ball to. That 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 waiting to see how the field unfolds is as much down to Spurs as it is to Sheffield United. He has to... You have to see what the opposition are doing as well from a goal kick. You can't just look at your own players. You have to... Both teams have to sort of jockey for their positions that they're in. You, I think it's... I think he's got a point. You can't penalise... A, a goalkeeper or a, a club but just wanting to assess what the field of play looks like before you execute your goal kick mm. it's just one example but I think overall that it that and you alluded to it too earlier you said you said Tony the, the, get, the game will reward more attacking teams now the way it's mm. being officiated but if you are Sheffield United uh, what, what 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 is the world of football actually saying to them you should find money you don't have. You should buy players you can't afford and you should play a style of football that you haven't been playing in order to be able to work with the new set of rules. I I, I think it is sh- tipped against a club like them. And I think, we, you know, he they did a great job in thwarting Spurs for so long and for, the, for, to, 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 for it all to come undone at the end when you feel like it's set up against you. I... I don't think that's a conspiracy theory. I think there's something in it. I really like your description of Spurs as bouncy. I think that could be the, the terminology for Ange Postacoglu's team so far. But Gregor, you kind of seem a bit conflicted I, about yeah. Alisson's view on yeah. Sheffield United. I, you know, I listened to, to what Heckenbottom was saying and I think it sounded like it had a point. But then I sort of realised that since the rule change where I said, you know, a defender can come and stand right beside the goalkeeper and he can pass it two yards to him and the play is live. It, it, you know, a lot of teams do that no matter where anyone else is set up on the pitch I understand he's you saying we want to play it from the back Spurs are going to be on top of us and we want to see how how they're going to press and that dictates how we play but that's not quite as true as it once was because you can play the play the ball inside the box now mm. so it's an interesting one I don't, yeah, but you're I, telling them to do well, that that's not their style Tony. no, no but he wants to play it from the back he said that he wants to play it from the back but if you but don't if, you're being told to do that not told to officially, but it's, it's like your 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 tactics are being dictated by the referee. No, that's what, that's what I'm saying. I think that point is is is, un, is undermined by the fact that you can now play it inside the box. You need to be brave to do it, but 
if you're saying you're waiting to see whether Spurs are going to play, Spurs can't step inside the box, so just play. See, he he, he spoke. Um, what I found interesting was the way he sort of said he spoke to the officials after, and they sort of dictated the style mm. of how we should play a long ball. Do you know, like, don't, you know, when you're you get a goalkeeper and the player gets the ball, he's seeing the options. He's not going to just play it to anybody. Mm. He's looking to see how it unfolds in front of him. So I don't see how you can make a time element on that. But he actually said, I think what infuriated him, that they basically, the referee or the lines, I think it was more the referee, had just said, you know, he's telling me how I should play the style of football, which I found a bit odd because he had a a point. I would be, if I would have been Heckebottom, I would have been more angry with the second goal, the winner, with how they gave away the ball in a certain area when they knew that Tottenham were playing. Look, if you look at the... equaliser, set piece, and Basham's just been run off for the free header. Like they've done so much good work and he's mm. obviously yeah. angry about the, the way they've chucked it. I know you do the numbers way more than me, Gregor, and the numbers of the game was that Tottenham basically threw the kitchen sink out from the start of the game, didn't they? Yeah. So they, they, they were playing the way they ended up winning the game, mm. but they were doing that from the early part of the football match anyway. Um, it was a strange listening to the manager, but I did think he had a valid point how where officials shouldn't be telling you how you play when they've worked on that all week. To try and have an effect on Spurs, to deny him to stop them, which what they which they did. But what a world where Tottenham Hotspur now have uh, big sing-alongs of uh, Robbie Williams' angels to, to, to Buster Cogley's name, the new sort of anthem. Players are swinging on the crossbar, and like there's just like euphoric atmosphere. You're like, hang on a minute, this isn't Spurs, and like it is. Nothing wrong with an angel sing-along, if you ask me. We'll be planning one for the end of season the party show. Uh, Alison Rudd. Deciding the guest list as well, given the the earlier chat. But, uh, Are we going to be on it though? Yeah, who knows? <laughs> well, maybe we'll be paid to come on. Uh, we've got to finish with another team uh, who got a late winner, Aston Villa against Palace, uh, and then we're going to talk about Roy Hodgson, the Crystal Palace manager. Tony, just very quickly on Villa, your old club. What does this say about them? They've got their game in Europe this week as well. Um, I think we already knew that they are offensively a very dangerous side. Um, I mean, I saw them lose at Anfield three 0 when I. I came away that day thinking, oh, Villa look a little bit predictable at times. And they've, look, the RB's a good player. Mm. The RB's a good, he, he is a handful. Leon Bailey's been hit and miss since he joined the football club. And he hasn't even got going yet, Ollie Watkins. Mm. You know, Ollie Watkins has been a really good player for Villa over the last couple of seasons. So there were lots of good things about Villa. Um, I wasn't surprised by the result. Because I did think before the game, big big test for Palace going yeah. to Villa Park because Villa come at you, and you know we talked about attack-minded football and how, you know how it pays off that you can get a lot of things, uh, get 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 results out of games. Um, still, I'm still not quite sure where Villa will be and by the end of the season. I feel more just above mid-table yeah. because I do, do you think they might be a bit inconsistent, like you well, said with. Maybe with Europe as well, not finding that consistency. Oh, well, some of those Europe players, just on numbers, everyone knows Europe comes at a bit of a price, mm. and I think Villa will fall into that bracket. But they are, I mean, Villa. You talked about, you know, Spurs. Villa Park's rocking. Yeah, <laughs> and I. That's one thing that managers can give to their fans is when you get the atmosphere at a home game and the fans are buying into everything. As, as much as it can be toxic, when it's on, Villa fans are not surprised. The turnaround. We talked about. We started the program about Brighton, about not surprised at winning at Old Trafford. Villa fans wouldn't be surprised that Villa turned the game around either. Yeah, they look so dynamic now. That's yeah. one thing you've got to say. A lot about, of pace, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so much pace and direct play. 
in the final third and what a strike by John Duran mm. like you know, one of the moments when it's, the ball's still rising when he strikes it you know what I mean the, he's yeah. controlled it and just because of his agility he's lashed it into the net before anyone could really react it was a great strike Derby Derby's look, looks like he's going to be a real handful all season yeah. for Villa another exciting game for Villa but we want to finish with Palace and with Roy Hodgson um, obviously taken ill before the before that game. Alison Rudd, you interviewed him on Thursday. I'm not casting aspersions as to that. You maybe yeah. give, poison, <laughs> poison mushrooms, giving him giving him a cold or a dodgy cup of coffee. But we we hope and we believe that he is okay. Alison, you've spoken to him since doing that interview. So just update us on how he is. He's fine. Yeah. He's fine. Yeah, he'll be fine. He'll be fine. No, fine. no worries about you giving no. cough, coughing on him during. Giving him food poisoning. Thank God, because now that means we can talk about your excellent interview. Um, he's a person that you know really well. Uh, throughout your career um, you interviewed him on Thursday he spoke about his love for the game why he came back to Palace uh, and some of the exciting players that he's got I thought it was really interesting him talking about the kind of the palace that was the Wilfred Zaha palace to the palace that he's got now and that he's trying to build with the likes of Michael Elise and Eberiche Eze tell us a bit more about it yeah well he was at he was at pains to stress that both recent stints at uh, Palace he, he, he didn't lobby for they both came out of the blue and in fact, he said he'd been watching um, Patrick Vieira's Palace and seeing the young, exciting players that had been signed under Vieira and thinking him and Ray Lewington, because he, he talks about him and Ray a lot. They're a package, they yeah. are. And, uh, and saying you know, they, they would watch Palace and think, oh, well, it'd be nice if we'd had them when we were there because they're so exciting. And then he gets this shock call to go in there. And the, I was really interested in how... How do you do that? You know, they weren't playing to their potential under Vieira towards... They were they were nervy and not going for it. And his uh, the way he did it was, he said to those exciting young players, I, you, I will not change my mind. You, it doesn't matter what happens. I will always want you to do the right thing. And if it doesn't go right, it's my fault, not your fault. Because he said, if you, if you watch a team that has a few bad results tactics might change slightly players might be asked to be a bit more defensive minded and he was saying I, I will never you know if you're an attacker you're an attacker and I will want you to attack and I will want you to express yourself so do do what you do mm. it doesn't matter you don't, don't worry about what happened last week you do what you do and so he's he's lucky in the sense that he's got players with pace and talent and if they're told to just enjoy it as long as they stick to their shape um, just enjoy yourself then they have they have a lot of potential and also I didn't think he would accept this theory of mine but Zaha was so much Palace wasn't he everyone mm. you know they, they they often couldn't win unless he was playing you know if oh, if Zaha's not in the team Palace are going to lose today was the sort of the thinking behind it but in a way him leaving the country going abroad it means he's not he's also not a shadow or. The, the, the big figure at the club and it's allowed these young players to come through and not feel they're, they're second rate to Zaha they they can be as influential as him but instead of just having one player it's not just it's not just Eze it's not just Elise it's not just it's, it's there's there's lots of them who who can step in and express themselves more with Zaha not there because it used to be if there's going to be a flashy run or a great bit of skill or someone who leaves a defender on their backside it'll be Zaha and now it's a variety of players who can do that Do you think that's part of what excites him the, the variety that he's got and not not just having say one young player or one star player do you think that adds to the 
reason he came back. Yeah, because it, he he had, I think it was eight players who were out of contract when he on his final months at Palace when he the first time he was there that four year spell, and it was a really aging team, and it wasn't going anywhere at all, and it felt like a sort of convergence of an old manager, an old team, time to say goodbye. We've set us up, steadied us for the to be a proper Premier League stalwart, but where's it going? And they brought in new players, a new manager. New manager didn't work, but it's it's a, it's a strange mix, isn't it? You've got you've got an old manager with young players, but it work it works. The players like the his knowledge and his advice and his calmness and his ability to say, "Don't worry, just don't worry." Mm, I, I know to, what I want and you don't have to worry about what happened last week. I want to ask you about your intro to the piece which is, uh, reads, I have a theory which I put to Roy Hodgson that he was possibly on the cusp of becoming a national treasure but is now instead a cult hero. And you go on to talk in the piece about during the interview people coming up and saying hello and things. How how do you think he's viewed and how does he think he's viewed within football? Well, I put that theory to him and he I thought he might he did laugh but he also said more people lately have been coming up to him in the street than used to and he did think what's going on something's different for a, for a chat or just to say hi Roy yeah, well, just, just to shake just to want to shake his hand mm. so it's kind of weird it's as though he ha- he has sort of crossed that line and become a national treasure people I know okay you've let the cat out of the bag at my tennis club <laughs> people I know at my tennis club who don't like football, they all know who Roy Hodgson is. Yeah. And they all think he's lovely. And isn't it amazing? He's 76 and he's working in management. Everyone, he's, 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 he's crossed that path. He's now gone international, almost national treasure. But I must tell you one funny thing. We, we had lunch in a quite posh restaurant, sort of restaurant where it's not done don't for the staff. It. <laughs> it's not done for the staff to ask for a selfie or acknowledge that you're famous. You know, it was posh. It had a it had a, a sommelier. That's how posh it was. A sommelier. He wore a suit and had a little badge of a vine, so, so that you knew he was the sommelier. And Roy had a glass of red, but he asked the sommelier to recommend the red. The sommelier went into great detail about which red he should have. So Roy and then said, bought well, the most expensive one. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't. And so Roy said, oh, "Well, I'll go with I'll go with the expert." And then five minutes later, the sommelier came back and said. Was the wine up to, you know, did he, did he, did it fit the bill? And Roy said, yes, it was very nice, thank you. And the sommelier said, I think that wine, I think that particular Pinot Noir does a job. It does a job a bit like a, a winger who, oh, no. who, who, <laughs> oh, no. who is, who is attacking but remembers he has to track back. Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, my God. And I'm thinking, really? A glass of wine can be like that? Alison's that thinking, leave the imagery to me, son, all right? <laughs> back off. But it was his way of letting Roy know he'd recognised him. Right. And it was his way of having an interaction so he could say later, I talked football with Roy Hodgson <laughs> yeah. without breaking the rules of saying, <laughs> oh, well, I'm Roy, big yeah. fan. <laughs> Tony, just very quickly, how do you think of Roy Hodgson within football because he's a guy who's been around for so long and I was reflecting on Alison speaking there and thinking about the oh. episode we did before an England match with Matt Dickinson and Matt Lawton telling oh. stories about England managers and a particular press conference where uh, Roy Hodgson was translating into Italian for the mm. Italian press 
And you remember, you know, I think a lot of modern football fans might not know the Roy Hodgson, who was a bit of a trailblazer, was an Inter Milan manager. How is he viewed to you, someone who's been in the game for a long time as well? Well, I'm lucky that I've met Roy. And obviously, Alison's introduced me to Roy a couple of times. I've been on a platform with him, which I just after, well, say just after, it probably would have been a year or two after he lost the England job. Uh, and a, a fan from the audience uh, wanted to ask an England question. Didn't entertain it more at all. Mm. And I remember thinking, wow, this is a big scar for him, mm. you know. And also being a Liverpool fan, his Liverpool experience wasn't particularly good. Yeah. You know, there was a lot of um, issues for him at the football club and Liverpool were waning at that particular time. So he's had the bad times, but if you look at his career, you could only admire him for what he's done, how he's handled himself. Um Clearly a very intelligent man. I've been lucky to sit alongside Roy at a dinner table, chatted to him, great knowledge about many different things. Um, appreciate that. Uh, so I've always, I, I've sort of changed my... If I would have been a pundit and not really met Roy, I would mm. have probably argued differently, but then have had the advantage of sitting with him, listening to him, understanding yeah. you know, the levels of football he's managed at. Um, different issues in different countries and being abroad myself and you know being a manager and mm. speaking many different languages there's a lot of challenges there that Roy has overcome and uh, I, the only thing I would say on Roy I'd love him one day just to come out openly and honestly about England mm. because I think it sits really badly with him because of the way he acted on that particular oh, night. Oh, I would disagree. He, well, he did come. He did. I, did, I interviewed. I did an interview with him and said yeah, but you're always favourite. You're always favourite, Howie. He's always really nice to you. It was in the paper. He, he, he did accept all the things that had gone wrong. But so, OK, on the night that we did the forum and a fan asked him a question about England and he, he had a damn right refusal to not even talk English. I probably just didn't like the way it was phrased. He probably thought it was it, a bit cheeky. I can't remember how it was phrased. Just yeah. on, on this topic as a final question, Alison, obviously, as Tony's saying, you know him very well, you've interviewed him lots of times. Is... I often wonder with managers and footballers, is what we see on telly, what we see in the press conferences, what we see on Match of the Day, is that the full Roy Hodgson or are there bits that he keeps back and always will keep back from the from the public, from the from the normal football fan? Well, you, no, you don't know. On in the post match press briefing you, you you see quite a lot of him but not the whole him. Mm. No. And in fact while we were talking, it's interesting. I, I, I just said he his his success at Palace has been about asking the players, telling them, pr proving to them you don't have to play with fear. And he did say over lunch, I said that to the England players. Mm. And it's much easier said than done. You can tell players, please don't play with fear. And he said, but they did play with fear. And it's hard being an international manager because if you're there every day on the training ground, you can you can you can really convince the players that you you mean it. But these the England players they've spent hardly any time with their international mm, yeah. manager and it's very hard for them to believe him telling them that there's any way that can be bigger in their lives and how they feel deep down about the pressures of play, playing for England mm. so it's it's I, I I do have sympathy for how you come in as an international manager and you try and change a culture and it's the job Gareth Southgate gets done. Southgate has, <laughs> Southgate has been given time to do it, and he's been—he's mm. actually, if you think about it, he's been quite indulged. But he, he managed—I think he had enough results running a parallel with him trying to change the culture. 
but I still think I still think when you watch England sometimes I still think that they are those players are way down they're not they don't play as freely as they do for their club it's a fascinating interview. You can read it on the Times website now, along with all the reaction to the weekend's games. Uh, we're going to have to leave it there, guys. Thank you very much for joining me, Gregor Robertson, Tony Cascarino and Alison Rudd. If you like the podcast, make sure you're subscribed and make sure you go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game for our latest subscription offer to all the best journalism. We'll be back on Thursday. 